Opera acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Today, we're venturing into what is really a fundamental conversation for health systems, and that is culture. What is a safe culture? And if there is such a thing, then there must be the opposite, an unsafe culture. And then there is, of course, the vexing question of what contributes to culture. So let's get right into it now with my very well-qualified guests. Broad Hunt is a neonatologist and scientist at Monash Health. Suzette Woodward is a visiting professor in patient safety at Imperial College London. And Michael Greco is CEO of Care Opinion Australia. Welcome. Can you please tell us a bit about yourself? So Rod, let's start with you. As you've mentioned, I'm a neonatologist. It's a long word. I trained in medicine. I'm a doctor in Adelaide. Um, and then I trained in paediatrics. And then I moved into a more specialized space so that I'm a doctor working in newborn intensive care. And along the journey, I have um, done some research and so I have now become a clinician scientist and spend some of my time working in the newborn intensive care unit and some of my time doing research that involves prevention and understanding of brain injury in newborn babies. Suzette, could you tell us um, maybe a bit about your career by way of introduction? Yes, thank you so much. It's lovely to hear about Rod because um, I'm a paediatric intensive care nurse by background. Um, and uh, so I did about 15 years or so um, hands-on clinical intensive care um, and then um, branched out into what was called clinical risk at the time. And this was in the 1990s, so a really long time ago. Um, and now it's progressed into the whole world of patient safety. And I've been working at a national level doing mainly campaigns associated with safety culture. Um, and as you say, I'm a professor of patient safety and I do lecturing all over the country um, and also internationally. Michael, your turn. Maybe you can start by explaining what Care Opinion Australia is for us. Yeah, sure, yeah. Care Opinion is a not-for-profit uh, website by and large that allows consumers, carers, friends, family, staff to write their story in sort of near real time uh, on a website that uh, everybody can get access to and it sort of alerts staff within organisations so they can respond. There's a lot of positive stories and also stories that aren't so positive so it helps them improve as well. I'm an associate professor at the School of Medicine, Griffith University, up here on the Gold Coast in sunny Queensland. Um, but I guess my passion comes from this whole concept of humanising healthcare. So um, it's around getting, uh, bringing together the health professionals and the consumers in a sort of constructive way. Um, and prior to that, I guess my passion for it all came about a little bit different. I used to be a Franciscan monk for seven years. So I was a chaplain in hospitals and prisons and working with street kids. So sort of came out of that and worked with the College of GPs for seven years, sort of looking at improving bedside manner. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with this, the, the safe culture of an organisation as well. Absolutely. Um, so, Rob, let's let's swing back to you. Maybe could you could you describe for us some of the pressures of um, of working in healthcare as we try to kind of unpack or give people a sense of what what culture looks like in that setting? 
as I said, I work in newborn intensive care and the NICU or the newborn intensive care unit is a real pressure cooker. We look after babies who are very sick when they're born or become sick soon after they're born. Um, there are a surprisingly large number of them, so we're often very busy. The neonatal intensive care unit is often full to capacity. And um, so we're looking after a very sick group of patients in a very emotionally charged situation and trying to manage parents who are blindsided by the arrival of a, a baby who often was expected to be well, but unfortunately is not. Um, I think that public healthcare particularly is designed to be resourced for the ideal situation. So everyone turns up to every shift and there should be just the right number of people to look after just the right number of patients. But unfortunately, that often isn't the case. People, staff members get sick, pandemics occur, um, people have to stay awake from work furloughed because they've had an exposure or, you know, life happens. And so often the resource required to meet patient demand is slightly under. So I think there's a combination of an emotionally charged space where we're looking after very sick patients, um, coupled with an environment which is just slightly lean, leaner than it should be. Um, and all of that together creates pressure. If I can say, having been a parent with a child in NICU, um, I don't think I was always easier to deal with. So that's a, that's a pressure. They're not just dealing with the patients, you're dealing with, the, as you say, you're dealing with the family and the intensity of their emotions. That's right. Suzette, you know, through your experience as a nurse or as a patient safety ex expert hearing stories, uh, I wonder if you, whether you have any examples of how the sort of the pressure of the workplace can contribute to culture and then, and, um, or maybe impact on patient outcomes even. Yes, absolutely. So um, I can talk from very personal experiences. Um, when you are really stretched, um, when you're tired, beyond tired, um, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, healthcare, you make mistakes. We have to be open about that. Um, and uh, and what we what we can do is try to prevent those mistakes from being really bad and also really help people to work as safely as they can. But, um, you know, I've had um, personal experiences of when you're so pressured and you ha don't have enough staff and you're distracted by multiple things around you um, that you can go around and, and develop habits which aren't really very safe. Um, so, for example, um, uh, quite some time ago when I was um, in intensive care, we had a very poor practice which became the norm, which was that the nurse would draw up all of the drugs at the bedside and the person who was in charge of the unit would just go quickly round and round because that's what you're doing. You're sort of task orientated. I must quickly get this done. And as you're quickly getting it done because you think it's the right thing to do, um, unfortunately, you don't necessarily check it as well as you should do or mistakes can happen. And I know that one child in my care um, received 10 times the dose of a drug because of that particular practice. So you've got all of those factors joining together that you're tired, you're distracted, you're busy, you're, you've got into a habit of doing something that's not as good as it should be. And before you know it, all of that combines to some of you making mistakes. It's not that you wanted to or you're intended to, but it just kind of left, it, 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 just, it just happened like that. So that's just one example of many, many that um, are happening, unfortunately, quite frequently in our, in our healthcare systems at the moment. 
Michael, so are patients aware of these pressures that are going on for health professionals? Are they, are they in your experience, is that, that something they talk to or refer to? If it's obvious they can spot that, generally patients will assume the best, that everybody's working to their full capacity. Um, there's a lot of trust that patients bring to their care, uh, they assume. Now, I guess when that breaks down, then, um, yeah, they can see it. I mean, we've had some stories on the site uh, that capture some of that breakdown around staff arguing with one another. That's probably pretty extreme. But also where they've had different information from different team members within the care team, and it's confusing. And, uh, and that's why I think it's really important to capture those stories. I mean, empathy is so important. Rod, I wonder if you have any thought about how the pursuit of good outcomes for patients might impact on the sort of the day-to-day -day work for clinicians? Oh, I mean, can I start by saying that I think health generally attracts a group of professionals, whether they be nursing, medical, allied health, who are caring, by their nature and who are diligent. Um, and often they're reasonably clever. And I think it's fair to say that none of us ever go to work thinking that we're going to do a bad job. We all turn up every day hoping and aspiring to be the best that we can be for the, for the patients. You know, I think we impose pressure on ourselves to make sure that we are doing the best for our patients at all times. And um, I think we know that parents and patients are expecting that we're going to perform at a high level. So there is pressure um, not to make a mistake. Uh, nevertheless, unfortunately, as we've heard from Suzette, um, mistakes do occur perhaps more commonly than we would like. But, um, you know, we impose pressure on ourselves and this expectation that we're not gonna make a mistake is tricky. So Rod makes an excellent point there. Um, we, we did a bit of work around the definition of reassurance and uh, it was interesting, there was quite a distinction between how health professionals perceived reassurance and how patients and their families and carers perceived reassurance. For health professionals, reassurance is, I'm, I'm at the top of my game, um, you know, I shouldn't make a mistake and I'm confident that I can, I can do the best outcome for you. And there was a sense of we can't reassure everyone as well. And I can't reassure patients that they will get better. But patients saw it differently. For patients, reassurance was about the healthcare team has my best interest at heart and is on my side. That's different from everything's going to be okay and that I won't make a mistake. That's like if I do make a mistake, I'll be with you in, in that journey. Well, absolutely, because that seems to me that part of what you're saying, Michael, is it's not just what, it's not just sort of the prevention space, but it's about, and, and this is maybe a nice segue for us, but it's about what happens when something does go wrong, meaning what's the after um, decision or action from the healthcare professionals and the importance of what happens then. And, and it, it, that is something that is really, really fundamental for patient trust, patient and family. Well, it is. And that's at the end, but I think it happens before that. It's the messages the healthcare team are sending in that journey of care 
And when something does go wrong, there's a sense of trust that's been built. So what happens after really depends on what's happened before. I see. So that, that even if nothing does go wrong, but, but you're building that relationship, you're building that sense of trust and reassurance, um, which gives people the confidence sort of being in their care. It's almost like you're putting deposits in the bank account uh, as you build that. And empathy is the biggest, the, the, the quickest route to that. And whilst doing that as a care team, you're actually building deposits. So when things do go wrong, um, it's a withdrawal, but it's not going to break, break, uh, break the bank balance. I, I'm sorry to use that financial analogy, but for some folk, they'll get that. I think that's, that's something you should maybe trademark. We really need it right now, don't we? Suzette, I mean, obviously, just to think about and, and not to focus on the negative, but healthcare has risks inherent in it. Um, so can we talk about what happens when things don't go well? Uh, I wonder if you could comment first on how teams or systems respond when there's a poor patient outcome. You know, let's say regardless of whether it turns out to have been a mistake or just a, a known complication, but what, what does that look like? And if you have any comments on that. Yeah, so um, gosh, there's tons of things that happen when something doesn't go as planned or as expected. I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a bit of a fan of uh, Professor Sidney Decker, who talks about the fact that using words like wrong, um, an error, a mistake, um, really marginalise what actually is going on and that actually we need to think more broadly than that. And it's something that didn't go as planned or as expected. And but um, but in the end, we're all human beings and we all go, oh, I made a mistake. But um, and so for the individual involved, um, uh, if we just really hone down on an indiv individual, there's um, a really lovely um, set of, for me, uh, three words which are personalization, um, pervasiveness and, and persistence. And, and, and what that basically means is that you think it's all down to you. So you blame yourself completely, let alone any, anyone else blaming you. You, you. you start by blaming yourself. If only I, if only I uh, could have done this differently or, or that differently. Um, and then um, the kind of persistence, you feel like that um, this um, is going to feel like this forever. Um, and we know that um, a lot of our healthcare colleagues who've been involved in incidents, especially very serious incidents, really, really struggle and suffer um, emotionally, mentally, and sometimes um, even physically. Um, and so that um, persistence is going to affect me forever, um, overwhelms people. Um, and then there's the pervasiveness that they think it's going to affect absolutely everything about themselves. So not just the way their colleagues will look at them, but the reputation they have, their career and their families. So, you know, you, because as, as Rod so beautifully said, we are deeply caring people and we want everyone around us to um, to be to see us as that. So to go back to your mum or your dad or your husband or whatever and say, I made a mistake and, and it led to somebody being harmed, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. So you've got all of that around the, the clinician or, or, or any other healthcare provider. And then of course we have the family. Um, and as Sydney Decker talks uh, so beautifully about how it can ripple out. So it's the family plus their friends, their colleagues, their neighbors down the road, it kind of ripples out. And, and as he says, people feel hurt and there's that pain. Um, and, the, and, and as Michael says, what you've got to do is hopefully you've had a 
good relationship that's kind of built you up to that. But you've got to very, very quickly build a, very, a strong relationship of trust at that point. You've got to be clear and in, in, informing and kind and really help people get through this so that they are restored to some place of some healing. So there's all these different perspectives going on in that immediate aftermath and sometimes for weeks, months and years beyond. You know, in the heat of the battle, once a mistake's been made, it's critical that the mistake is recognised because the only thing worse than a mistake is a mistake that no one picks up. And from a medical perspective, I can say that my priorities in addressing an error acutely are to ensure that the patient is fine or is going to do as well as they might do. So if there's any specific therapy that the patient needs to mitigate the impact of the error, then that needs to be instituted. But then just like Michael and Suzette have alluded to, the family need to be told. They need open disclosure. We need to sit down and be honest about exactly what's happened, even if we don't know why. And that's why having some credit in the empathy bank is always useful because it gives you a positive foundation to start from. But then I, the point I want to make is that I think what families really need or parents really need is an apology. And I think for the longest time, unfortunately, healthcare workers steered away from this for fear that it was going to somehow admit liability. But in fact, in my experience, what parents want to hear is someone say, I'm sorry. You know, I don't, I don't know why this has happened. We will find out. Um, it's a terrible thing. But in order to try and rebuild trust and restore a therapeutic relationship, there has to be an apology in there. Um, it's very common, actually, in that situation, in the heat of the battle, for parents to be angry. Um, and in fact, I think some of the more useful training we can give our junior doctors is to sit in role plays and have people scream at them, because that's actually what happens. And, um, and to learn how to weather that immediate crisis of how could this have happened? Who, what are you doing? I want to take my child somewhere else immediately. I'm going to sue are often words that come out of people's mouths. They invariably really do. But, um, you, you know, I think we need to train people to be able to have those difficult discussions honestly and, and know how to handle the backlash that follows so that things can be worked through. Um, there is a culture of blame for a whole raft of different reasons. There's a culture of blame because people impose it upon themselves, they feel guilty. Um, there's a culture of blame because people associated or nearby want to protect themselves and so it's easy to deflect responsibility onto someone else. There's a culture of blame because if there is has truly been a mistake happened, then the family are often going to want to blame someone. And so it's not only cultural, it's real. Um, and often that can be worked through. And as Michael said, you know, relationships can be restored sometimes to the point where people no longer want to complain. But, um, and that's the ideal, but um, there is definitely a culture of blame. What I would say is that when these things are analysed, and I've spent a lot of time in committees reviewing adverse events, um, it is very rarely one single person's fault. Um, there are often system issues that, um, that exist that have left a, an individual, regardless of their 
position or their seniority vulnerable in some way and a mistake has been set up. Um, and it's always easy in retrospect to go back and pinpoint a series of factors that might have resulted in a different outcome. But I think in, in addressing a blame culture, um, it's important that we understand why these adverse events happen and work to tighten up systems so that they can be avoided. Suzette, do, do you have any comments about blame culture? It's obviously something you've thought about a lot in your work. Yes, most, most definitely. Um, uh, there is a blame culture. There, there, there's, the, and there's some linkages in a blame culture associated with um, the uh, world that's now being kind of thought through in terms of incivility and bullying. There's, um, so there's some linkages there in terms of who gets blamed and who doesn't, um, because um, uh, interestingly, there are differences. So the more different you are, whether that be your ethnicity, your race, your color, your whatever it might be that makes you different in life, um, the, the, the more different, unfortunately, um, you'll be treated. Certainly in the UK, the research has shown that um, if you are from a lower banding, a lower scale in the, in the pay scale and, and level of seniority, you're more likely to be blamed than somebody more senior. And if you are somebody from a different ethnic back background, you are more likely to be blamed and disciplined. So the sort of blame and the discipline coming together um, uh, is linked. So we've got this starting to get this intricate link between patient safety, equality, diversity, um, and inclusivity, um, as well as then the next thing that steps onto that is creating a just culture so that everyone feels like they're going to be treated fairly. And if you don't have that, then they won't feel like they're going to be treated fairly. Um, even if you try, you've got to be doing that consistently for everyone. And then finally, the little sort of circle of all of that is to then try to build the psychologically safe environment that people feel that they can speak out. Because if you've got this blame culture, they won't feel like they can speak out. And again, it's those groups that feel different, feel really that they struggle to have a voice. So all of those things are connected. When we talk about culture, too often people say, all we need to do is just change the culture. And you just think, oh, okay, um, could you just unpick that please? Because culture is huge, it's massive, it's multi-component and it's been developing for millennia. Um, you know, I, we can go back and back and back. Um, and so where we are today is built on all of that. And you can't just go, oh, I changed that overnight. Um, so it is about unpicking what do you want to actually change in the culture and then working on that one step at a time. So those are the experiences that, that I've had. Often when we are reviewing cases of adverse events, um, there will be an individual somewhere in the hierarchy who has apparently made a mistake and the question is often asked, why did they not call for help? Um, and that question is kind of pretty loaded because it implies that an individual who's made a mistake has made two mistakes. Not only did they do something wrong, but they didn't call for help. But in fact, what the real question is, is why didn't they call for help? What was it about the working environment that prevented that individual who probably knew that they were in strife from picking up the phone and calling their boss at three o'clock in the morning and saying, I need you to come in, I'm in trouble. Um, so invariably there's systemic issues that underpin these things that have to be interrogated. And culture is a kind of sexy um, 
tag that we bandy about these days, but it is a very complicated beast to change. Well, you, you beat me to the question which I was just going to ask, which is whether or not culture in the workplace has an impact on patient safety. And you've just sounds like Rod um, given us an example of that, All right? Yes, there is definitely cultural elements to healthcare that um, lead to a blame culture and that can have an impact on patient care. I think very reassuringly, um, we are becoming increasingly cognizant of those issues and with uh, an increasingly loud patient and consumer advocacy voice, we are being held to account. So I think the days where the stuffy suited old white male stormed around and sort of ruled the roost are disappearing rapidly. And that, that is a good thing. Um, what we aspire to now is a culture where all team members and family members feel empowered to speak up and to communicate what they feel about the care of their child or themselves, where they can contribute to that care in an equal way and in a respectful way. And in that sort of environment, it's much easier for people to reach out for help when they need it, which is fundamental to preventing um, mistakes. Um, healthcare is pretty robust in many ways. There's a lot of systems in place to ensure that responsibility is very rarely left in the hands of one person. Suzette made the, um, or gave an example earlier of a, a child who'd received 10 times the dose of a drug. It sounds horrifying. I too have seen exactly the same error in newborn intensive care. In fact, without wishing to scare the audience, it's the easiest mistake to make. You know, 0.4 of a drug has to be drawn up into 50 mils of fluid. A doctor has to come along and write it up or put it into an order. A nurse has to read it. The two nurses have to make it up and check it. Someone has to check that it's going into the right patient at the right time. There's all sorts of checks and balances in place and yet we still see mistakes. An example would be where a junior doctor has been working all day, she hasn't had lunch, it's 10 o'clock at night, she's been asked to work on for an overnight shift because the night duty person hasn't turned up and she rushes to a ward, scribbles out a drug order, the nurse then has to try and decipher it, the nurse has to try and draw it up, um, check it with someone, she can't quite read what the label on the drug order says so she's too scared to call the doctor back because she knows the doctor's really under the pump and before you know it, a medication error has occurred. Exactly the situation we want to try and prevent, and yet we still see it. Could we talk about what a safe culture looks like then? Uh, Suzette, what does a safe culture look like to you? Um, so uh, a safe culture looks like um, everything that actually has been said so far, which is people feeling like they can speak up, that they can share their concerns, they can... Um, they feel that they belong to the team um, and that they're part of the team, a crucial part of the team, um, that they feel like they can learn and ask questions because it's it's not just speaking up when they see something that might be going wrong. You've got to be able to speak about everything. You know, um, oh, I don't really understand how this works. Can you show me? Um, and so it's about being able to learn, being able to, to share, being able to contribute, but also to be able to challenge. And that's the hardest one, which is to be able to challenge um, uh, others when you don't agree with what their what their um, choices or decisions are and 
then you, what you've got to do is make sure that anyone who does try to do all of that is responded to appropriately and consistently and, and, and with care and kindness. So that if I want to raise a challenge, that somebody goes, oh, wow, thanks, Suze, that was really brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Rather than, why did you bring that up? You know, so it's your response is as important as the person speaking up. So that's a, the, the basis of a really lovely, safe, culture um, but actually it's also about not only developing relationships with our patients and their families but but each other so good relationships with each other the more we know about each other the more we can depend upon each other and the more that we can actually go and find each other when when we need them in times of of distress or, or otherwise so that relationship stuff and being able to communicate and have conversations without any fear of repercussion is absolutely vital. All of those form the foundations for a really good safety culture. Ron, what does a safe culture look like for you or how do we promote it? Sure, I absolutely agree with everything Suzette just said. A healthy working environment with good, strong relationships is key. I think beyond that, it's critically important that every member of the team knows that if something doesn't go according to plan, that it needs to be discussed um, and it can't be swept under the carpet or hidden, but that it will be brought up, not as an exercise in um, humiliation or, or to blame anybody, but as an opportunity to learn so that those avoidable things can be prevented in the future and so that people can do better next time. So I think it's really critically important within a healthcare team or system or ward or organisation that there are people who are primarily responsible for reviewing um, mistakes, adverse events, that there's a culture where people feel rewarded for reporting them, um, not in a whistleblower sort of way, but that people are encouraged to call out um, situations where resources too limited so that things have gone wrong or something has happened because a drug wasn't labeled properly or whatever it is those effort has to be invested and resource has to be invested in the investigation of these things so that systems can be improved and so that um, mistakes can be avoided and then guidelines have to be developed so that patient care can be directed so when a a doctor or a nurse isn't quite sure what to do there's somewhere to find out beyond picking up the phone and I think beyond that there's a couple of other things which are perhaps a bit curveball but I think occasionally health services value reputational risk ahead of individual um, staff welfare and I think that's a dangerous place to be because um, if hospitals are valuing their own reputation above the welfare of their staff, then that facilitates a blame culture. Yeah, it really highlights, Rod, the um, you know your point around that blame culture about the willingness of the or the doctor not feeling people are approachable to share fault. You know that things have gone wrong. It, it really high, puts a spotlight on it, doesn't it, on, on leadership within an organisation, and it's almost like the leadership have to role model what they want in an organisation. Sometimes there's a, a need, a shift of emphasis in the way the organisation values, puts value on things. And we always put, and we do, and rightly say, put value on clinical competence. Um, but there, I'm seeing more of organisations putting value 
on kindness. Part of it's building this culture of we value not only how well you work as a clinical, as a clinician, in terms of uh, competence as we traditionally see it, but the way you interact with patients is really important in our organisation as well. And we want to reward that. And we want to see that and see that demonstrated. Well, as we wind up this conversation, I want to offer enormous thanks um, to my guests today, Michael Greco, Rod Hunt, Suzette Woodward. Uh, this topic of safe culture, it really is critical for all health systems and for patients and their families, but also for our health workforce, isn't it? So thank you for teasing out some of the nuances of these issues and for I suppose providing some optimism for the future at a time when we all need it, don't we? So thank you. Thank you so much. I think there is a lot of optimism and I've learned a lot listening to Rod and Suzette and for your questions, thanks, Susan. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much, Susan. It's been great talking to you all. Fabulous. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. Please don't forget to find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might find your podcasts by searching for Taking Care. You can subscribe or review. We also have a growing back catalog that you might be interested in checking out. So if you have any feedback or ideas for episodes, please get in touch by writing, writing to communications at opera.gov.au. And we'll see you next time.